case I didn't say it last week, uh, we will be studying uh, the incarnation, uh, the the uh, circumstances around the incarnation last week, this week, and for the next two weeks. So a whole month of this as we go through Matthew. And uh, so just keep that in mind because we won't be having any kind of Christmas message. Um, unless Jeff does something that we'll have done, that will be stuff for you, but I will be doing that since we're getting our lunch work down. Uh, okay, so last week we began the book of Matthew, and we saw that Matthew, uh, in, uh, unique to Matthew as opposed to the other, uh, three, uh, uh, gospels, reveals Jesus Christ as the fulfillment of Old Testament promises, and primarily as the Messiah King, the King of the Jews. And he relies heavily on Old Testament prophecies and showing how they're fulfilled. Remember, uh, Mark shows him as the servant. Uh, Luke shows him as the perfect man. And then John shows him in his divinity. So the four different aspects of Jesus. Uh, we saw that his right to rule comes through being adopted in the Joseph's family, but being born from Mary. Both come from David, but Joseph's line was first. He could not they could not produce a king to sit upon the throne, so it had to be through Mary. But of course, being adopted into Joseph's family allows him to, that's the royal line, is that the, the bloodline was cursed. So anyway, that we saw how those two liturgies in Matthew and Luke bring all this together to show that Jesus not only is the only fulfillment of prophecy, but there could be none after him who could ever be the Messiah and fulfill Old Testament prophecy. And then, we finish in verse 17, where the uh, there were uh, 14 generations from um, Abraham to David, 14 from David to the Babylonian captivity, and 14 to uh, Joseph's time. Just to show the, the orderliness of the genealogy, and we, we use it to remind ourselves that uh, while all this was going on, while the Lord was keeping uh, the religion intact so that he might bring the Messiah into the world, we know, as we're studying the Old Testament, all sorts of conflicts and sin and disruption going on in the world, and in, even in Israel at that time, and yet the Lord's work is being done. And so a reminder that we don't need to be taken back by the chaos of this world, because the Lord knows them that are his. Everything's moving according to his plan. It will all end exactly as he wants it. Uh, the world, uh, while it's all under his control, nothing's happening apart from his will, it cannot be out of control. Because there's one who controls all things. It's extremely important for us to understand that. And so as we come to verse 18, we'll notice here that the first 17 verses, Matthew proves that Jesus Christ is human. He was born uh, from a line of this lineage. But here, in starting verse 18, he's going to show that Jesus Christ is also divine. Not he's fully human, but that's not the end of the story. The Son of God existed, of course, from eternity. But in time, he became a man. In the incarnation, as he was born from Mary, in the conception of in Mary, and so Matthew brings both of these 
into play so that we might be reminded that Jesus, of course, is the God-man. Now, in modern times, the virgin birth has been questioned by those who uh, hate God, of course, let's just be honest, but they also deny supernatural, uh, the, the miraculous, of the modern-day liberals uh, who denied the miraculous scene is really an attack upon God Almighty to say that God can't do the miraculous. Who are they to say that? But of course, since they hate God, they don't want the truth of Scripture, primarily the fact that they're sinners, that they'll face judgment if they don't uh, turn from their ways. They don't like that, so they deny the Word of God and they make up stuff uh, to try to ease their guilty conscience. And the virgin birth, of course, is one of those things that, well, this can't be. But what you see today that the Bible clearly teaches that it is so, and, and so therefore to deny it means to question the Bible. So, you know, like I've always said before, if you're going to question the virgin birth, then don't. Why call yourself a Christian? Just go off and start your religion or join another one. But the Bible teaches it. So, so uh, we accept it. Because this is the, God's word that has been very easily, as we try to show many times over, uh, it, it's self-confirming. The Bible proves itself. The prophecies that are fulfilled and so forth, we can unquestionably rely upon what it says. And even more to understand that to question the virgin birth is not just to question the Bible, but the question of the very power of the Almighty God who created man. And can he not do that? Uh, uh, have, can, can he not stoop down in time and be born of a virgin? Can he not produce life, a human life, apart from uh, the normal way? Well, of course he can't because he's God. And so as one begins to understand the nature of the atonement, it becomes obvious that this isn't just some really neat thing that God does. It's a, it had to be. Jesus had to be both holy God and man in order for the cross to be effective. God cannot die. And man, a, a, a sinful man, can only die for his own sins. There had to be, and Jesus Christ had to be the eternal God so he could suffer the eternal consequences of sin as an innocent, sinless being, and that came together in the form of Jesus Christ, born of a virgin, so he did not inherit the uh, sin nature of Adam. <clears throat> and so, today uh, we will limit ourselves to what Matthew and Luke reveal to us concerning these things, much like we did last week in the genealogies. But together they present a wonderful revelation of who Jesus Christ is and what his mission is. So as we come to verse 18, clearly Matthew means to emphasize the importance of the information that he's about to give. And the very first thing he points out, without a lot of fanfare, is that Jesus was born of a virgin. And he repeats this actually three times in our passage. He says, now the birth of Jesus Christ took place like this. He says, get this. When his mother Mary had been betrothed or engaged to Joseph before they came together, in other words, while she was a virgin, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. <coughs> Excuse me. So, 
Matthew very clearly makes this point. <clears throat> Next, Matthew refers to Isaiah chapter 14, verse 14, to show, as he does frequently, that this is in fulfillment. So it should be no surprise to anybody. Uh, the Jews weren't looking for this, but the Jews we know at this time, by and large, really misunderstood the purpose of the Messiah and uh, the kingdom that he was going to set up. Uh, but he says that um, down in uh, verse uh, 22, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord has spoken by the prophet. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. Now, the skeptics like to jump on this because the Hebrew word used for virgin in Isaiah doesn't have to be doesn't have to mean virgin. It can mean it. It meant a young maiden. But when you think about it, that uh, as a rule, young maidens are virgins. Uh, it, anymore, it's, it's maybe not like that too often. But in that day, that it was almost synonymous, right? And so it was rightly it, it rightly could be used as virgin. Um, so just because it doesn't have to be uh, mean a virgin, does obviously Matthew is saying that that is the intent. Matthew is the official witness of the Lord, one of the apostles, and so when he tells us that when Isaiah says virgin, it was looking forward to Jesus and being fulfilled in Jesus and Mary, then we understand what's going on there. The skeptics, again, are trying to deny that because they don't, they hate the very concept of what, of who God is. What is interesting here is that we need to be concerned with is that Matthew, an apostle, is making his point under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So this is true. The Hebrew word is not the issue. The fact that Matthew points out but, and Luke as well, that Jesus was born of a virgin, it explains to us what's really going on. Uh, Luke does this in chapter 1, verse 34. Uh, we'll kind of give the time sequence of all this in just a moment, but here, Mary, before she becomes pregnant, it said to the angel, when he, the angel comes and tells her what's going to happen, that she's going to have this child, and she how will this be since I'm a virgin? And the angel answered her, Oh, you're mistaken. I didn't mean that. No. He says, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born to you will be called holy, the Son of God. Because literally, in a kind of a literal way, it was through the power and the work of the Holy Spirit that Jesus Christ was conceived with Mary. And so, uh, she was a virgin, and that's extremely important to understand the nature of Jesus Christ. And so, the study of Mary is an interesting one. I want to just kind of go off in this, on, on this just for a moment. We're not going to spend a lot of time on it. But, we need to point a few things before moving on, because we know that in this world there is a lot of confusion by many over who Mary was, uh, over her whether she was a perpetual virgin and different things with the mother of God and so forth. Uh, so they're not just minor differences. They are extremely important errors that some have fallen into. First of all, the Bible never suggests 
that she was anything other than an ordinary woman. We know that uh, the Catholics have what they call the Immaculate Conception. So you might think, well, that's a reference to Jesus. No, it's not a reference to Jesus. In order to remove any chain of sin from Jesus, they have someone decided somewhere down the line that, well, even when Mary was conceived, she was conceived without sin. Now, how that works, of course, no one knows, but so now Mary is sinless, and so Jesus coming out of her is also sinless. That's the Immaculate Conception. But the Bible never suggests that she was anything other than a fallen sinner like the rest of us. It's very easy historically to show that all the doctrines, the Mariolatry doctrines, um, as the mother of God, uh, sinlessly born, which is the Immaculate Conception, uh, she is a perpetual virgin, which again is not scriptural, but she's co-redemptrix, mediatrix, this idea of a she played a part in our redemption along with Jesus. And then, finally, the assumption of Mary, which is the, the uh, teaching that Mary, uh, if she died, we're not sure if she died, but if she died, her body was taken up to heaven. And the idea really is that she really didn't die, but that her end was much like Elijah, that when it was time for her to die, the Lord just took her, and she was transformed into a perfect, or at least given a glorified body. So you see that a lot of those things really make her to be much, very equal to God, or to Jesus, because they consider her to be the mother of God in some bizarre way. But there's no hint in scripture of any of this. In fact, you can see where these things were developed over the centuries uh, through traditions and if you take a look at Wikipedia and you see what the, the text that they use to try to prove all this, uh, and that's just, in Wikipedia, I don't really recommend that for, to get truths as such, but it, it just confirms that the texts are nonsensical. And many of the texts are from apocryphal books that aren't even part of the Word of God. And so don't get, don't get, uh, fooled in any of that stuff. It's, it's all nonsense, it's all unbiblical, and it's all damning. Because once you bring Mary into the mix as a co-redemptrix with Jesus Christ, you are adding to the gospel. She needed a savior like everybody else. And Luke one forty six, and Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. A sinless person doesn't need a savior. It's also fairly easy, and we're not going to spend a lot of time in this, uh, but when you consider the fact that the world's pagan religions <clears throat> came primarily from Babylon, because that's, remember, wherever the world was, they built the Tower of Babel, which is which was a, a, a religious edifice, <clears throat> and God disperses them, and so they take this religion that, that, that all mankind had and carried it to the uttermost parts of the world, much of the world's religions <clears throat> trace themselves back to Babylon. And it's interestingly interesting that um, the, 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 the religion at that time had a woman who was uh, conceived herself by a sunbeam, who had a son who died, 
and 40 years, 40 days later was raised, and the 40 days is the uh, period of Lent, by the way. And it's interesting that so, that a lot of it looks a lot like Mary and Jesus. Now the skeptics again said, "Well, that just shows that the Christianity is just another religion that they all came from the same source." Well, the problem is, of course, is really in the differences, but we'll take into that right now. But instead, let's think about it like this: Satan, who has been alive for thousands of years, who is very I won't necessarily call him wise, but he's very smart, very intelligent. He was around when uh, he knew about Genesis 3.15, when it says, From the seed of a woman uh, shall the Savior come, and his heel will be bruised, but he will crush, you know, that. He knew all that. And so when he and his demons are leading mankind into the false religions, that he would develop one that, Look a lot like he knew was going to happen. And so, you've got a lot of things out there today that sound like similar to Christianity, but they're not. And so don't get fooled by that kind of stuff or upset by that kind of stuff. The basic story uh, that's, that began back then is, is, is carried on through the Greek mythology and later the Romans. Uh, she had a son, again, this woman, Semiramis, had a son, Tammuz, who was killed and raised again, as I said. The basic story becomes a basis for most other religions. Different names, Ashtoreth, Isis, Aphrodite, Venus, Ishtar, uh, and the mother of Adonis, Baal, Osiris, Eros, Cupid, the names for the son. Uh, this sounds familiar, right? It's the same story told over and over again because Satan has his counterfeits. <clears throat> so simply put, there is no biblical support for the place that Catholicism has put on Mary and made it look so much like the world's religions. Now, there's a lot of confusion when it comes to that. A lot of things get blamed on Catholics that took place long before Catholics were even a thing. But you can see something's going on here, and it's because Satan has his counterfeit. But don't get caught up in that. Mary was blessed among women. I mean, she was the one who gave birth to the Son of God. But she was not sinless. And those doctrines began to cast all sorts of problems upon the atonement itself. Now just as I close that little um, just let me show you a couple places in the Old Testament where we see some of the things I've been talking about in Jeremiah forty four seventeen. But we will do everything that we have vowed, make offerings to the Queen of Heaven. This is uh, idolatry here. The Queen of Heaven is, is, is who I was just talking about here. Pour out drink offerings to her as we did, both we and our fathers, our kings and our officials, in the cities of Judah, in the streets of Jerusalem. This is why Israel got carried off into captivity, because they were in full-blown idolatry, even carrying the idolatry into the temple complex itself. So this is what we will do. For then we had plenty of food and prospered and saw no disaster. But since we left off making offerings to the Queen of Heaven and pouring out the drink offerings to her, we have racked everything that had been consumed by the sword and by the famine. 
Of course, that's total uh, misrepresentation of what was going on. The Lord told them that, that as long as you are faithful to me, you will enjoy the land forever. It's when they turned to idolatry and God kept sending prophet after prophet who they kept rejecting and killing, telling them turn back to the Lord or this is going to happen. But this is how sin darkens the mind. We were doing so well while we were in full-blown idolatry and Jeremiah wants us to turn back to Yahweh. But that's, it's just going to, all that's doing is going to cause calamity. They had it all backwards. But anyway, you see her offer to the Queen of Heaven, and then in Ezekiel 8, he said to, uh, also to us, you will see still greater abominations than, than that they commit. Then he brought me into the entrance of the north gate of the house of the Lord, and behold, there sat women weeping for Tamil. So that was a thing they did every year. It was a period of time, the 40 days that we call Lent, or some people call it, where they wept for Tamil until he was resurrected. And it was going on even in the temple. So, anyway, so it, 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 it's old. It's been going on uh, for a very long time. <clears throat> and so, Baal, Adonis, you know, what we've said before, the idea was that when he uh, was in the grave was winter, and when he arose, uh, then he brought life, and that's when spring takes place and so forth. That's just paganism. And so, the, so now, and then this concept of the Easter money is just more paganism. It all came from paganism. Uh, and, and they incorporated that into the resurrection of Jesus. But I, I just have a hard time believing that the Lord really needs to be worshipped through things that have come out of paganism. So, you know, I, that's all I'm going to say about it, but just be very careful that what you do is biblical, and why do we have to bring uh, the Easter money into something that has got nothing to do with uh, the Lord and the Bible, but has everything to do with things that took, takes place in paganism. So, anyway, just some things to think about. <clears throat> Go back to the two different yet similar accounts of Matthew and Mark. We've noticed here that Matthew shows uh, this from Joseph's point of view. As we keep reading uh, um, in uh, our text, uh, this is the account of the birth of Jesus took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with the child from the Holy Spirit. We see Joseph's reaction. We'll get to that in just a moment. But an angel comes to Joseph and says, wait just a minute, things aren't as they seem. So Matthew has given us a, a look at this from Joseph's point of view. You get over to Luke, you uh, see the angel appearing to Mary, explaining to her what's going on. <clears throat> Clearly they are talking about the same event. But what do we make of the fact that they are not identical in their accounts? Besides what we've already pointed out, um, they present different aspects of Jesus and so forth, and when we deal with these parallel accounts, we notice that there are differences. Now, again, the skeptic reads these things and say, well, that just shows that this is all made up. Well, the problem is that doesn't hold any water. There are three different ways to look at the differences of the Gospels. And let me just talk about each three, and I think you see some interesting things. 
First of all, we can look at this as accounts are invented by collusion. But they got together at some point and has made it all up. But of course, if that's the case, that, that, that falls apart because had they done that, there would not be any differences. As we've said before, the police will know when they're talking to witnesses, when they all say the exact same thing, they know that they, they talked before they've already got together and talked about it. A truth is the witnesses all are giving it from their point of view, and there's going to be discrepancies because of that, because that's the way it would work. <coughs> so, you don't conspire to tell different lies, you conspire to tell the same lie. And so, we would expect there to be differences, not contradictions, just differences. So, secondly, the accounts could be made up separately. <clears throat> well, they didn't get together and make it up to it. They just were out there doing their own thing, living their own lives, and they, they made up their own story. Well, that would explain the discrepancies, but wouldn't explain the underlying agreement and support that we see in these, as we saw with the genealogies, that they have come together beautifully to present Jesus Christ and to tell the story of the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ. But they're out there doing their own thing. They'd all have different points. Uh, there wouldn't be any kind of real congruent uh, situation. In fact, when we put these two accounts together, we don't have two, two accounts that don't agree, but we have a very consistent history. And Zechariah, let me give you a short timetable. Zechariah is informed of John's birth. That's quickly, that's in Luke. Followed by Mary receiving the word of Jesus' birth. Then Mary visits Elizabeth. Elizabeth is, I don't know, three to six months uh, pregnant. Mary has just become pregnant. She visits Elizabeth, then returns to Nazareth. And Luke ends with John's birth, Elizabeth having John the Baptist's birth. Matthew picks up at that point. Now we read how Joseph reacts, but now Mary is showing, and there's no denying the fact, he realizes what's, that Mary is pregnant. And uh, so he reacts by, uh, as we read here, he loves her. He doesn't want to uh, embarrass her, but he also doesn't see her as fitting to be a wife anymore. So he's getting ready to divorce her, to put away uh, in, in their, that one-year time of betrothal. When you break that off, that's considered divorce in, the, in those days. That's so the angel comes to him, as you read here in Matthew, and says, wait just a minute, you're, you're not, you don't understand what's going on. The thing that is inside her is from the Holy Spirit. She's not been unfaithful to you. And so he explains to Joseph what's going on. And then Luke continues with the trip to Bethlehem, the actual birth, and the days immediately following. And then Matthew takes over. And records the visit of the Magi some two years later, their flight to Egypt and the return to Nazareth. So when you put them together, you have a very consistent timeline of what's going on. That's kind of why we've been going back and forth with Matthew and Luke. These aren't just random accounts that make no sense. They make all kinds of sense. And they do so in a way that shows that the Old Testament is being fulfilled. And so that leads us to the third view of why there's discrepancies in the Gospels. 
which is that everything about these Gospels leads us to see them as factual. And of course, you probably read many lawyers and people in law enforcement who are Christians who have studied the Gospels realize that that that's very consistent with factual witnesses. And this is how we are to understand them as they accurately relate to us the history of Jesus. Remember, Jesus was commissioned, has commissioned these men to be the official witnesses. And so Matthew is defending Jesus' birth before unbelieving Jews who still consider him to be the illegitimate son of Mary. And of course, many still do. You know, the Jews, uh, to down to history have referred to unbelieving Jews, down to history, have referred to Jesus as the bastard. Because that's how they looked at him. And Matthew is saying, no, um, that's not the case. Because there's something divine going on here. <clears throat> Most Jews didn't see that the Messiah was going to be a div- divine anyway. Uh, in fact, just the opposite. They saw him as the son of David. They, they thought he would be just a man. And that is because they, they saw him more as a political leader rather than a redeem- redeemer from their sin. And so if you fail to understand sin and its consequences, you're going to fail to understand the importance of what Matthew and Mark and Luke are doing here in these first few chapters in their Gospels and let us know that all this had to take place just as the Old Testament said, or there would be no acceptable sacrifice for sin if these things weren't true. And if you understand sin, you understand why. And so, if like the Jews, you think Jesus is just a man who taught some useful things to make you a better person, just to set a good example, then you're going to have absolutely no reason for the virgin birth. It may not make it won't be important to you because you don't understand why it's so important. But once you understand that Jesus was born of a virgin, that changes everything. It separates Jesus from all other religious leaders as the only one in true God. And so Matthew starts off, much like Genesis does, by using the same word. This is the book of the beginning of Jesus Christ. Not the beginning of the Son of God, who is eternal, but the beginning of the God-man, Jesus. He shows where Jesus' humanity came from, and then uh, to the actual Genesis or birth in verse 18. In fact, Joseph is never referred to as Jesus' father, and Jesus has never called his son, except if, when the reference are made by the Jews. There are times when the Jews call him the son of Joseph, but the Bible never refers to Jesus as the son of Joseph, only the son of Mary. And that's, you know, there, there's a reason for that. Additionally, the Bible always refers to a woman's seed as coming through a man you know, remember, so-and-so begat so-and-so, begat so-and-so. The, the women, by and large, are never really uh, in those instances, except twice, where, where a man is said to come through a woman's seed. That's Isaiah 14, uh, 7.14, that Matthew quotes here in verse 23, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son. You don't read that in the Old Testament. The other place is Genesis 3.15, which through a woman's seed. Right? That's the only time you read of a woman's seed in the Old Testament, referring to Jesus. We might add to that Galatians 4, 4, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son born of a woman, born under the law. So 
There's a reason for that because the Bible makes it crystal clear Jesus was not born from a man. So as I said here in verse 18, the betrothal or engagement could last a year. And it was a time of probation, a testing of fidelity, among other things. And a, a groom would pay a dowry that would cover the wedding. It would be kind of a type of insurance for the bride in case, you know, she was divorced for some reason. She she wasn't left without anything. And it's during this time, this, this year's time, that Mary becomes pregnant. And Joseph was a man who was seriously about obeying the Lord. He was obviously a godly man, but he loved Mary. And he was perfectly just to decide that Mary would not make a good wife. But he didn't want to shame her publicly, so he was going to divorce her, but do it privately. <clears throat> and move on, and he would at least keep his reputation intact. Until, of course, the angel steps in. <clears throat> now, it might be hard for us Americans living in this social climate to see what's the big deal. Because women are getting pregnant all the time before the ring goes on the way. <clears throat> but it is a big deal. It matters when your children are conceived. doesn't mean the end of the world. doesn't mean you're not saved. But Christians are to live differently than the world, and nothing ruins that, like conceiving out of wedlock. It is a statement, that you're a, 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 an irrefutable statement, that you would disobey the Lord. And so, I don't care that it's, we have a casual attitude towards that in today's society. It's wrong, and we need to, as Christians, uh, understand that. And, and one of the reasons it's become so casual is because abortion is so easy, so, so that nobody knows about it. Because you can hide it. It's back in Mary's day, you couldn't hide it. <clears throat> now you can, because you've got to murder your baby to do it. It matters. It's important, and don't, young people, don't, don't fall into the trap that it doesn't matter. I know couples, I have friends who, you know, were slept around when they got married, and all that, and, uh, it, it doesn't just ruin your, your testimony. It, it causes problems in their marriage. You know, it's things they've got to, they've got to deal with in their marriage, and they wouldn't have to. Marriage got enough problems around creating problems like that. <coughs> so, in verse 20, the angel is sent to explain to him what, what, what's going on with Mary. This is too important to miss what he's saying. The Holy Spirit is conceiving the child in Mary. He is part of the triune God. So what conclusion are we to come to concerning the nature of Jesus? Well, he is the God-man. He is Emmanuel. He says, his name shall be called Emmanuel. God with us. You would, I wouldn't call my son Emmanuel. <coughs> now I know that people do have named their kids Emmanuel. Um, you know, I'm not saying it's necessarily wrong, but we know a lot of Latinos who name their child Jesus. <coughs> I'm not exactly sure why they do that. You know, I can't worry about that. But I would name my child my son, Emmanuel, because it's God with us. He's not God. Right? And so these things are given to Jesus because of his unique situation. And they both coming together are very important. We saw that Jesus means Yahweh saves. And Emmanuel, Yahweh is with us. 
And so coming together, we think that Jesus Christ is Yahweh, and he is the one who's going to save us from our sins. God's going to do this thing. Psalm 137. O Israel, hope in the Lord. This is Yahweh. For the Lord, there is steadfast love with the Lord. And with him is plentiful redemption. And he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. So Yahweh is said in scripture over and over again, he will do the redeeming. Well, who did the redeeming? Jesus. Yahweh saints. Joshua in, in, in the Hebrew, right? So all those who say, well, the Bible never says that Jesus is God. Well, they just show they don't have any idea what the Bible says. Because the Bible says, just in the Old Testament alone, over and over again, Yahweh is going to do the redeeming. And Jesus, Yahweh, does redeem us. But even more than that, God has come down to be be with us. And that's in Jesus' work. And so Jesus' work is God coming down to be with us in order that we might be with God. He might unite us to God. The only real way God can be with us and we not be consumed, right, is um, to be in the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, I didn't tell Jeff to sing that song, but Jeff picked out uh, Charles Wesley's great song, Hark the Herald Angels Sing. It's just, you know, I think it's a verse three or two or three, just one of the greatest verses in all of Timothy. Charles Wesley brings us together so well. Christ, my highest heaven adored, Christ, the everlasting Lord, late in time, behold him come. They're about coming in time. Offspring of a virgin's womb, veiled in flesh, the Godhead seen. Hell, the incarnate deity, pleased as man with men to dwell, Jesus, our Emmanuel, our God to us. Heart, the herald, angel sing, glory to the newborn king. So, Charles Wesley understood it, I think, pretty well. I hope we all do too. And so, let me just close by saying that, in a sense, Matthew closes his book with the same theme of God with us. We've never thought about this before. But what does he say in chapter 28, starting in verse 19? I am with you to the end of the age. So he is God with us. He came down to uh, in the incarnation. And he tells us, oh, by the way, I'm going back to heaven, but I am with you to the end of the age. Because we know that's in the Holy Spirit. But it's another reference to the fact that he is God. If his whole life had been about God being with us and getting us to God, then what would be the importance of him being with the church during this age? He was with us in his conception, but he's telling us that he's with us now. But if he isn't God, then then what has he done? Because I want peace with God. I want the power of God in my life. I want favor from God. I want the blessings of God. I don't want some good man, some saint, as it were. I need God with me. I don't need a saint. I don't need to be praying to saints uh, who aren't listening to the prayers anyway, who don't have any power to help me. I need God in my life. 
I don't need the patron saint of travel, patron saint of this and that. I need God with me. And Jesus says, I am with you. He doesn't say, I'm going to have a bunch of saints who are going to also do more merit than they really needed, and so that extra merit uh, will be given to you. No, I am with you. It is that Jesus is God that his promise has any teeth. He is Yahweh who saves. He is the God with us. And what his words wouldn't make any sense. I am with you to the end of the age. If he's just a man, uh, who cares? So Matthew begins with God coming down to us, and he ends by saying, he will never leave you nor forsake you. Well, Jesus has many names in the Bible. The first and the last, Prince of Peace, Light, Shepherd. But it is the name of Jesus, or Yahshua in, in, in Hebrew. We said Jesus is the Greek form that the apostles used. That, that was given to Joseph. Joseph, as the head of the home, I want you to make sure that he is officially named uh, Yahweh Saves. Because that sums up who he is. Simply and concisely, Yahweh Saves. Yahweh, he is God with us. Uh, he is the God-man. The, uh, the Gospels make it crystal clear, and I'm very glad. They do. Any questions or comments?